Every economist knows the Phillips curve. It's this fundamental relationship in the economy, this surprisingly strong connection between inflation and employment. Prices go up and there are more jobs, rain back inflation and more people are out of work. It's hotly debated what this all means. The author of the Phillips curve, Bill Phillips, is almost unknown in his home country, but he has a crazy story. Bill Phillips was a crocodile hunter in Australia. He was an air ministry engineer in Singapore in World War II. And for three and a half years, he was a prisoner of war, calmly building secret radios. And that was before he'd even seen a supply and demand graph. Bill Phillips brought new insights that helped change the direction of the whole discipline of economics in the 1950s. He was one of a few pioneering academics who brought in engineering equations to answer questions like, can governments control unemployment? And why do the price of groceries keep going up? To understand Bill and how he changed economics, you can look through his history, right through to his childhood in rural New Zealand. A water wheel lights up the farmhouse. Now, unlike most New Zealand farmers in the 1910s, the Phillips family is electrified. Bill, Reg, and his sisters Carol and Olive grow up playing cartoons on this device called a zoetrope. And they make a crystal radio set. They watch a magic lantern playing moving images from America and Britain. And their kitchen doubles as a dark room. They read books late into the night until they hear the squeak of their father pulling a winch. The water wheel stops. Everything goes black. Bill Phillips helps milk the cows, then violin practice, deer hunting, homework, BB guns. In hindsight, this is practice for what's to come. As he cycles over dirt roads for hours to get to Dannyvirk High School, he knows that's time wasted. So he fits a book stand to his bicycle handlebars. And that's not entirely satisfactory. So he fixes up an old truck, which he drives to school without a driver's license. Bill graduates high school early, in the top of the class. But the price of butter suddenly halves. And what does this mean for Bill? Well, it's 1929. The waves of the Great Depression are breaking all over the world. His parents tell him the news. They can't afford to pay for him to go to university. So Bill moves out of home to work at Tuai Power Station, a new hydro dam. After that, Australia. He shoots crocodiles, fixes motors, and studies engineering. He learns his first differential equation while lying under the shade of a transformer in a gold mine. Those equations will come to define him later on. He decides to catch a Japanese ship to Shanghai. But after a day on board, Japan declares war on China, so he's diverted to Yokohama. When Bill's in Japan, he takes photos of some troops, but the police take him in for questioning. He's lucky, they just confiscate the photos and let him go. But all through Korea and Manchuria, he's now stopped at every checkpoint and taken in to special supervised hotels for the night. He takes the train from China to Russia to London. And along the way, he's asking for jobs in the Soviet mines. And he thought it would be interesting to work in a planned economy. And this starts to sound made up, but it gets crazier. World War II starts. Bill signs up for the air ministry. And he's taken to Singapore, where his job is to add machine guns to these clunky old fighter planes called buffaloes. And he times the machine guns to shoot perfectly in between the airplane rotors. In 1942, the Japanese take over Singapore. And as Bill is making an escape on the boat, the ship is bombed. He finds a huge machine gun, 
but it only shoots sideways, not up to the sky. And so with explosions and gunfire around him, he calmly builds a new mountain and fires back up into the bombers for three and a half hours. It's a thin escape. Bill is in Java now, as the Japanese are descending down Southeast Asia. He sets up a small camp on a hill overlooking the south coast, facing Australia. He and two others try to find a boat to sail across the Indian Ocean. One day Bill and his colleague are walking back up the green scrubby hillside, and they see their colleague keeping watch. There are two Japanese soldiers either side of him. Bill turns and runs and jumps off a sea cliff. He describes this like a Walt Disney character running over thin air before falling. But Bill's sister Carol later said, later we would realise it was not really funny, but an absolutely petrifying experience. We can only imagine how many times Bill would replay this scene in his head. Walking through the palm trees and banana plants, vines and saplings crunching beneath his feet, slogging up the slope, the Japanese soldier, the cliffside, The prisoner of war camp in Bandung is brutal. Here, morale is almost as important as food rations. And they have no idea what's ahead. Will the Allies win the war? And if they do, when? And in the event of a defeat, will the Japanese soldiers just simply massacre the prisoners and burn down the camp? So, over three years of captivity, and in worse and worse conditions, Bill puts his childhood love of crystal radios to use. He makes secret receivers to keep up with progress on the war outside. He knows he could get killed if the radio sets are discovered by the Japanese guards. He makes one under the kitchen floor, one in a chair, and one in a pair of wooden clogs. Eventually over the air, these radios fail as the valves blow. He needs a new acorn valve. So in the night, he watches guard while another prisoner breaks into a Japanese lieutenant's office to steal some parts for their radio. Under a mosquito net, over three nights, he repairs the radio in the clog. He presses it to his ear. And that night, he is the first in the camp to hear of the atomic bomb exploding in Hiroshima. It worked, Colonel. It worked. Bill whispers in the dark. As the war ends... Bill Phillips returns to the family farm in New Zealand. His sister Carol says he is woefully thin. He makes a joke about the camp. She wasn't so bad once he got used to her. And I got to work on my Chinese. He's now 31 years old, chain-smoking, and while outwardly cheerful, recovering psychologically. He applies for an ex-serviceman's rehabilitation study grant. He enrols in a sociology degree at the London School of Economics, where his tutor reports say that he is slowly overcoming feelings of inadequacy, not very well adjusted to school, and that he has something of a psychological problem. Bill makes a friend, Walter Newland, he's another former serviceman, and they go on weekend walks. They take out two actresses from the West End. Walter's in his second year focusing on macroeconomics. They're living in a country potholed by bombing, with food rations and cold flats. Explaining the shortages, the price spikes, and the currency crises seems vital. Everyone around him is talking about the economist John Maynard Keynes. But Keynes' ideas are hard to grasp in their entirety. Bill fails two economics classes. He's barely passing sociology. His friend Walter moves to Leeds University, and Bill's time is nearly up. The condition of his grant is that 
once he's finished his degree, he has to return to New Zealand. No more London, the city he moved to a decade ago. No more walks, and certainly no more dates at the West End. Reading his economics textbook, Bill sees a diagram. It shows water flowing into a tank with a lever. It's classic supply and demand, just presented in a different way. There's one pipe where water flows into a container and another pipe draining it. The pipe going in, that's supply. In this case, the supply of wheat. The container, that represents the grain silos that farms hold onto. And the pipe going out, that's demand. Connected to the water level of the container is this little float attached to a wire and pulley. And when the water level is high, price is low. When the water level is low, price is high. It's just a metaphor. A drawing to teach economic students. But it's one that Bill can visualise instinctively. The winches and levers are just like that used by his father to start and stop the water wheel generator back in New Zealand. The force of the flow is just like the water blasting through the Tuai power station. The water diagram from his textbook is more than an analogy. It actually shows the market working in a way that supply and demand graphs can't. So Bill draws a new diagram on a sheet of tobacco-stained typewriting paper. On an ordinary supply and demand graph, there's nothing to indicate how much grain the farmers are holding onto in storage, or how many packs of flowers are just sitting in packing factories. The water flow analogy, with the storage container, it tells a new story. Bill shows that in the short run, wheat prices can be influenced by the amount of it in storage. But in the long run, all that matters are the flows. How fast the container is filling up with supply, and how fast it's draining away with demand. Bill, who until now was a mediocre student at risk of failing, extends this idea. Supply and demand charts are used everywhere in economics. What other insights can he show by applying this hydraulic analogy? Maybe this could help him write out and better understand the ideas Keynes talks about. The interest rate for saving and borrowing is a sort of price. The price for money. The debate over how interest rate works was being fiercely argued. Maybe a water diagram that shows the importance of rates of flows would help. And Bill is an expert on flows. Reservoirs, intakes and shoots. So he draws a series of water tanks showing how interest rates go up and down. Money flows from earnings to savings to the banks to stock markets and back to investment in the economy. And throughout all of this, the volume of the flow determines the interest rate. When Walter visits London in 1949, Bill shows him this paper. Bill's lecturers weren't interested, but his friend could be. Walter barely reads it, but he does like the diagram of the water sloshing around as money through the economy. Could you build this? he asks Bill. Probably, Bill replies. Walter's intrigued. He extracts 100 pounds from the University of Leeds. And that summer, he helps Bill make a machine the size of a refrigerator, out of wires, pulleys, a generator, and perspex taken from an old Lancaster bomber. Now Bill's scholarship has run out. He takes out an overdraft and writes home for money, and he's lucky enough to have landlords waive rent. The machine is completed towards the end of autumn. They call it the MONIAC, the Monetary National Income Analog Computer. Bill has weeks left before he has to return to New Zealand. There's an urgency to show as many people as possible in London what this machine can do, preferably influential people. 
There is this weekly seminar run by the head of the LSE's economics department, Lionel Robbins. This would be the perfect venue. So Bill brings some perspex and blueprints to where he hears there are some professors at the Royal Economic Society event, and he interrupts Professor Robbins in the lift. Professor Robbins is sceptical. He says, all sorts of people have invented machines that demonstrate propositions which really didn't require machines to explain them. But with some politeness, and possibly just to get rid of Bill, he arranges for another professor, James Mead, to meet with Bill Phillips. James Mead, who had gone to win a Nobel Prize, gives Bill a slot at the seminar. On November 29, 1949, with a perpetual cigarette in hand, Bill is at the front of the lecture theatre. Everyone who matters is there. Bill gives a preamble with his heavy New Zealand accent, pacing back and forth. His hands are shaking. He explains a debate between John Maynard Keynes and Dennis Robertson, how the demand for money is determined. He switches on the machine. The motor sends pink liquid around various containers. The debate he describes is laid out in the machine, transparently, cogently showing how the stocks and flows of money could affect interest rates. Waterfalls from income, where a portion is drained out as taxes. Some goes to savings and then investment, income to consumption. A lever oscillates as interest rates go up and down. It leaves an impression on the faculty. The next day, Professor James Mead writes to his colleague saying he was very much impressed. The machine showed great ingenuity and supreme craftsmanship and served a really useful role as a teaching device. He doesn't just want to flatter Bill Phillips. He's also trying to get Bill a £700 fellowship. This could allow Bill to stay in London. And he writes to the New Zealand consulate begging them to waive Bill's requirement that he returns home by the end of the month. The fellowship is arranged, the extension granted, and Bill writes a paper on his machine. And despite some reservations over poor grades, Bill is offered a lecturing position in economics and the opportunity to complete his PhD. Bill's machine is quietly successful. It doesn't get put into mass production, but it's picked up around the world. Harvard buys one, and others commissioned by Cambridge University. And the Ford Motor Company and the Central Bank of Guatemala both decide it would be useful to have a Moneyac on hand. The Moneyac isn't going to revolutionise economics. It's more of a teaching tool. But it does show Bill's knack for creative thinking, mashing together the two things he cares about, engineering and understanding the economy. Bill's academic career has started. Now, well into his mid-thirties, he has, for the first time in his life, some stability. Each day he puts on polished shoes, a crisp white shirt, and a dark suit, and he heads to the university. At a dinner party, Bill meets a New Zealand woman, Valda Bennett. Valda is 27 and working for the City of London, and they soon start seeing each other. Two years later, they get married in a registry office. It's not a flashy wedding. They go out for lunch with some friends. In the afternoon, they go shopping for their new flat. Bill Phillips has never been extravagant, and this shows both at home and in his career. Valda attends only one of Bill's lectures. She later said, We got into a way of life that suited us both. Bill's interests at LSE move on to more conventional economic formulas and academic papers. 
but the topics are new. He works on innovative ways to incorporate formulas from engineering into principles for controlling the ups and downs of the economy. In 1958, Felder and Bill have a first child, a daughter. They have few friends in London, just the odd colleague around for dinner. And they decide that Bill should take a sabbatical in Australia. And that way they can be closer to family. And around that time is when Bill really makes his name. At the university, Bill starts to think more about inflation. This was only approximated by the Ammoniac machine through the exchange rate. Inflation within the economy could have been messy. Somehow more pink water might have had to be pumped in. At the time of becoming a father, some new data is released. It's getting closer and closer to moving day. And it's only weeks before heading off that Bill gets his hands on the numbers. He now has UK unemployment and price inflation rates going all the way back to 1861. So, using a plain old pencil and graphing paper, Bill's set to work at home. He pieces it together on a graph, but it looks like a complete mess. No real pattern. But then he has the idea of breaking it out by business cycle. In each business cycle, from boom to bust, there is a strangely strong relationship. It looks like the letter L on the page. Bill strings this together in a rush, and he talks about it being a wet weekend's work. He doesn't mention it as anything significant to Valder. This would be the paper that immortalises Bill in the name The Phillips Curve. The curve that is brought up, at least implicitly, in almost every discussion about the wider economy. As the days tick closer to leaving day, he quickly types up the paper and he sends it to the journal Economica, where it's accepted for publication immediately. The connection between higher unemployment and lower inflation isn't new, but the clarity of Bill's paper is forceful. It shows the facts of the economy from just under 100 years ago all the way up to the present, and it builds in patterns explaining what's going on. And this is before widespread computing. When Bill returns to London after his three months at the University of Melbourne, he's surprised that people refer to this as the Phillips curve. If anything, he's worried that people are reading too much into it. Bill's a little embarrassed when Parliament starts debating the Phillips curve. Bill's paper, while popular, is not accepted blindly. It's controversial. And in seminars, he's grilled on any perceived flaws. His colleague, Dick Lipsy, hosts what he calls an investigation and publishes a follow-on paper. Bill doesn't believe that policymakers have this simple choice, that if you only just tolerated a little more inflation, you could have permanently lower unemployment. He knows that if you overheat the economy for too long, people start expecting higher inflation, and then they'll just build this into their contracts, and then you'll have both higher unemployment and higher inflation. But a defining moment is when American economists Paul Samuelson and Robert Solo refer to the Phillips curve in one of their papers. And Paul Samuelson is literally writing the book on economics. Bill is commanding more and more respect among his colleagues and internationally, and he's promoted to a special professor position. But he doesn't like the controversy, and he doesn't take up an offer to write a follow-up article. He does attend seminars and debates around the topic, listening respectfully, but rarely putting forward his own views. He meets with University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman, and on a park bench in London, scribbles out a formula showing how people's expectations of future inflation can influence today's wages. Ironically, Milton Friedman would later debunk the Phillips curve using this concept. By now, 
Bill is modelling the economy on more conventional computing machines. This is one with stamp cards and code, not pipes, funnels and water. He visits Chicago, MIT, and in 1966 he gives a keynote lecture in San Francisco. At San Francisco, in the time just before, hundreds of thousands of young people would swarm the Haight-Ashbury in the summer of love. Bill's work is all about stability, control systems, and econometric prediction. And that's not what the next generation has in mind. Bill returns to the smog of London with his students protesting the appointment of the new director, Walter Adams. The students are not happy with Walter Adams' links with Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Hundreds of students stage a sit-in with candles in a dark lecture theatre, protesting Walter Adams. Caught in the crowd, a porter working for LSE falls to the floor and dies of a heart attack. These protests might not have been the reason for Bill's departure, but they highlight the divide between Bill's generation of former soldiers and nurses in World War II who now seek security, versus the young baby boomers impatient for social change. By that summer of 1967, the Phillips family decide to leave for the quiet and clean city of Canberra, Australia, population 100,000. Bill recruits economists and builds up a strong economics department at the Australian National University. He continues with his research, but after debates with argumentative colleagues, he's increasingly reluctant to publish. One day he drops a cigarette while talking in the economics department. He's having a stroke. Bill is left paralysed on one side and now uses a walking stick. He keeps working at ANU. Every seminar is held on the second floor, with the only access up two storeys of circular stairs. And going up is okay, but going down, Bill thinks of Java. He remembers the green cliff that day in 1942 when he was captured. The staircase starts to look like a cliff face. He tells a colleague, Going down those stairs is the scariest thing I've had to do since I jumped over the cliff. Bill moves back to New Zealand. He's now in a wheelchair. Against the advice of his doctor and Valda, Bill teaches Chinese economics part-time, a pioneering field. A University of Auckland colleague puts together a review of his achievements, a festschrift. This colleague writes about how a Phillips curve industry quickly developed and how Bill is a tremendous stimulus to applied economics research. In 1975, Bill's in his office at the Auckland University, and he collapses, dying of a second stroke. He was only 60. Bill quietly improved our understanding of economics, but he was never awarded a Nobel Prize, never found his face on any New Zealand currency, and was never knighted. And maybe that's the way he would have liked it. Thanks a lot to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand for letting me record the sound of the ammoniac machine. And also thanks to the Napier City Council for the Phillips water wheel sounds. For a full biography, read Alan Bollard's book, A Few Hairs to Chase, The Economic Life and Times of Bill Phillips. I'm Darian Woods. You're listening to Gridlines. The next episode will be about the rebel Cambridge economist Joan Robinson. It'll be out in a month. Thanks for listening.